0: under the Jews, a stumbling block. Under the Greeks, foolishness. But under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's
1: your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. I am. Always excited that you have decided to come and listen, and and, uh, I hope and pray that what you hear in these broadcasts will be a help and a blessing to you. Uh, I am sitting here in my office again in Kitabazi, Masaka, Uganda. I've got a cup of coffee, got my notes in front of me, and we've got a new idea or another idea. It's not new. (laughs) It's been around for a long time, but the the idea we're going to look at today is we're going to try and answer the question, why did God give the law? I taught this uh, this past Sunday morning here at Masaka Independent Baptist Church and um, want to record it here as well for documentation on the podcast and And for those of you who are interested in these types of ideas. Over time, sporadically, I, I may drop in a, a, a broadcast or two on the idea of rightly dividing, and that's where this fits into. Um, we recently did Old Testament salvation. That's that's obviously a, a form or, or an aspect of rightly dividing. And then considering why God gave the law is another aspect of rightly dividing. So when we study God's word and we want to learn how to rightly divide as we go, it's it's very important. I would say you cannot accurately understand the word of God if you don't know how to rightly divide the word of truth. And we are commanded you know, we are told specifically to rightly divide the word of truth. Uh, It's expected of us. In fact, it's one of the, it's one of the few ways in the, in the Bible that God says, if you will do this, if you will rightly divide, you will please me. You will be approved by me. And what other way, I mean, it'd be an interesting study to do, but in what what other ways can you find approval in God's eyes? He says, if you'll just study and learn how to rightly divide, (laughs) I'll approve of you. That's that's a blessing. So we want to learn how to rightly divide. And and as we do that, certain fundamental ideas begin to emerge. They begin to be made manifest. They they begin to kind of surface. And um, amongst these fundamental divisions is is the, the separation between law and grace. And anytime clear and fundamental divisions in God's word are are intermingled or or when they are taught in such a way that they erroneously overlap then doctrinal confusion is going to be the end result and uh, we, i mean this is a huge problem in our day people don't the most fundamental aspects of of proper division of the word of god are completely either ignored or or so many people and pastors and preachers are ignorant of the idea and um I would love to see that, see that fixed, corrected, repented of. Now, the, the characteristics of these two ideas, law and grace, they are drastically different. And and for obvious reasons. They are antithetical one to the other. The law unquestionably demonstrates your condemnation. So it would be silly to suggest it's there for your justification, which you may hear me repeat. Several times throughout this broadcast, grace, grace unquestionably demonstrates your escape from that condemnation. So it, it would be silly to confuse the two. They have two completely different purposes, and when when you when you don't properly separate them, when they, when they both do not properly exist, you're going to have a ship that's going to that's going to tip and it's going to sink. We have. You know, just this is a side topic. This is not the road we're going to go down in this broadcast. But if you have a church that majors on grace, but but has no understanding of the law or God's God's righteousness, God's judgment, that church is going to be so weak and effeminate and watered down and liberal. It's 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 kind of it's disgusting. Um, It's (laughs) I have no interest in being a. In fact, when I when I got I got saved by myself in Saudi Arabia. And uh about two months after I got saved, I, I turned down my follow-on contract in Saudi and came back home to America. I couldn't wait to go to church. And I, I'm going to church and like the men look like women, the women look like men. You know, we have a congregation of gender-neutral creatures <laughs> sitting there with with Christian tattoos. And um, you know, I went to a church, they had a they had a blues concert in the auditorium, instead of a Sunday service, they just decided to have a rock concert. And they they told you not to get involved in fornication. But if you did, it's okay. You know, there was no, we're not really gonna, we're not gonna judge you. It was kind of the mentality. And so I began to say to myself, if this is Christianity, I'm going back to Saudi Arabia to make money. Like I, I cannot spend my life in this weak, effeminate, liberal garbage. and And that was a man, as a man who was Newly saved and had no understanding. Um, all you know, I, the, I, I guess I had a the, the idea I had of church was the churches that my great grandmothers used to take me to, and they were they were two very godly ladies. Um, it just didn't, it skipped a couple generations before it finally caught up to me, I suppose. And so, um, if that if that was church, that, that's and then then you have the other spectrum. We, we went to a church once that. <laughs> First of all, the pastor called me ahead of time, and he said, "I just, you know, I just wanted to let you know we are a very conservative church." And I said, "Oh, that's okay, no problem." We, we, I mean, we, we think of ourselves as fairly conservative Christians. I mean, I guess I had no idea what I was walking into. But uh, he said, "No, no, I, I need you to understand we are a very, very conservative church." And I was like, oh, "Okay, all right." So then he sent us a booklet that explained how he expected us to dress. Now, I still in my mind just assumed that I mean my wife dresses like a lady. She always wears dresses and skirts. They're they are modest. Um they you know she covers her flesh. She doesn't show off her form and and um I you know I I don't wear shorts. If you do, that's up to you. I don't I don't care what you do. I'm just telling you this is this is what we do. I wear pants, I wear I, I try to cover my body. Um you know I I, I just generally speaking we're fairly Fairly conservative, I believe. We're not overly conservative, but we are. We 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 believe men should dress like men, women should dress like women, and and we just keep our bodies covered up. So uh, that's not what they meant. <laughs> uh, your wife has to wear a skirt to her ankles. She has to wear uh, stockings of sorts that cover her ankles because even seeing her ankles would be too much. Um, my wife. Now we went there, and we did not. We did not. to our, our, you know, own fault, we did not read through the manual that they sent us thoroughly. And so (laughs) we had to go out and buy my wife some clothes. She looked like one of those women from Little House on the Prairie or like, it was, uh, I mean, it was interesting. Um, The church was a good church, but it was struggling. And the pastor actually took me out to breakfast and asked me, why do you think, you know, what do you think is happening? Why do you think our church members are leaving? And I told him, as As nicely as I could, I said, You're shallow, um you're focused on the length of a woman's hair, the length of a man's hair, the length of their skirt covering covering their ankles, I mean their ankles, come on man you know if if thighs are showing, we've got a problem if somebody's ankle is showing, I mean <laughs> you're gonna have a hard time justifying that the Bible literally says if your thighs are showing, you are naked, okay that that there, there is clear biblical guidance on that, but your ankles, you know, I was like, you, you're just. And then while we were there, they 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 warned me against Patch the Pirate, and told me, you know, be careful with this music and that music. So, the, so the the problem was not that they didn't have standards. The problem is that their standards were so overboard; it, it was domineering and legalistic, and and so the the, the more important factors like. Doctrine, Bible teaching, soul winning, all these unbelievably important aspects of Christianity were left out, but everybody dressed unbelievably conservative and their music was unbelievably conservative. But that's shallow. There's nothing to cling to there. You need need some some meat from the Word of God. And so if your church has this imbalance between law and grace, um, you're going to have problems you're you're moving in the wrong direction that balance needs to be there both are true now now what we just went through has nothing to do with our topic it you know we're we're literally going to define the law and we're going to look at grace along the way and um but though but the, those are examples of the imbalance that can rise up in your church if you don't you know you need to have standards that's extremely important but your standards should not dominate people's lives. They should not feel like they just move back into a state of bondage. And, and your standards should also come with liberty where people can make their own choices. But if all you have is liberty and no standards, <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a carnal mess on your hands and you don't even know it. You think you're helping people. You're not helping people by not, by not giving them standards to live by. Standards elevate people but they need to be balanced standards that that make a, a a baseline that we don't we don't cross and at the same time gives everybody the liberty to to move within that baseline in in a functional and in, in a healthy way and uh you've got to have you've gotta you've gotta strike that balance but again that that ultimately is not what we're is not our topic so those of you who are upset who are liberal uh just hold on and those of you who are upset who are who are dominantly conservative. Just, just hold on. (laughs) I'm going to upset you more in just a moment by defining the law (laughs) Um, because a lot of people think they know what it is. And, and unfortunately they don't, a lot of people think it's a means of justification. Um, And it's not, and it's, it's, it's hilarious. You meet people and they say, I believe you got to keep the law to be saved. Well, what's the law? The 10 commandments. Well, that's okay. That's a tiny, tiny part of the law. That's not the law. But okay, let's say you keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. What are they? <laughs> well, I don't know what they are. So you're telling me your soul, that the eternal resting place of your soul is based upon what you do with the Ten Commandments and you don't know what they are? I mean, that seems a bit odd, <laughs> a bit dangerous, but, you know, it's up to you. So um, so, anyways, we're going to talk about law and grace. We'll start in John one seventeen, And... uh and the reason we want to start in one seventeen is because we are talking about rightly dividing the word of truth, and this gives us a beautiful example of of, a, of the complexity of that. In some cases, it's very simple. Here's law. Here's grace. Okay, that's a division. Here's the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament. Well, it's not. It's not quite that simple. But but that that, that is a that is a division. That's an Overly simplistic division that will cause you problems if you don't carefully divide. Where does the New Testament start? Does it? I mean, where 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 are we at? How, how does this happen? You want to be very careful. While it is a proper division to say there is an old covenant, an old testament, and a new covenant, covenant new testament. Um, when and where does all that take place? How does that start and begin? You know, if these are important ideas. In John one seventeen. John 117 is obviously marking a division, but if, you, if you're not careful, it can cause you to make a mistake, and so we want to look at it from this perspective and use it to help us define the law. The law was given by Moses. Okay, so that, that's the first idea related to the law. Who did it come from? Moses. Now, ultimately, we know it came from God. God gave it to Moses. Moses gave it to the people, but God says here the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay, so here, here's the problem. If you're not careful here, you will make the mistake of assuming that grace and truth did not exist prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. You've got to put John 1:17 in its context. This is marking a division between the law and between grace and truth. But that is not to assume that grace and truth did not exist prior to this division. It has to be taught in its proper context or you're going you're gonna to make a mistake. Uh, this, this passage presents us with some very important ideas. It's, it's uh, manifesting to us that there is an order and division regarding law and grace. But again, we've got to see it in its proper context. The you know, grace and truth, they predate the law. They were around before the law. They were in the world before the law, before the coming of Christ. So what is the Lord talking about when he says grace and truth came by Jesus Christ? Let me give you some examples. God spoke to men from Genesis to Exodus 20. God gave his word to men and, you know, at sundry times and in diverse manners, God gave his word to men before the law was given. And all of it was truth, all right so and none and none of those men merited hearing from God they didn't earn the right to hear from God, so then it was grace. The law was given in Exodus twenty, but Noah before the law found grace in the eyes of God in genesis six eight so if these are true, then john one seventeen can't can't be used to draw. A hard line of division that implies grace and truth did not arrive until the coming of Jesus Christ. You can't use it that way. That's not what it's saying. That's not what it's telling us. Not what it's teaching us. Uh, so then, so then it is upon us to carefully affirm the context and make sure, you know, to present the idea properly in a biblical fashion, in a helpful way that 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 clarifies and expounds unto people not in a way that that further adds to confusion. Now now part of the confusion exists because we often call the law itself anything written by Moses. And that's just a that's a general reference to the five books of Moses. That's that's not to say that there is the the law is something more specific. There is the law, the commandments given by Moses that began in Exodus 20 and carried on for several chapters. Uh, until Lord the Lord had given His law completely, then it goes on into Leviticus, where the Lord defines the sacrifices and and you know the Levitical priesthood and all those things. So so the, the the law is massive, and it and it covered a large span of of the five books of Moses, but it doesn't cover all of the five books of Moses. But in general, we call the five books of Moses the law, just like we call the four Gospels the Gospels. But the gospel is something very specific. You can find it in the four gospels, but but you, you wouldn't go out and preach the four gospels so people could get saved. You would preach the gospel so that souls could be saved, as Christ said, to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you can read of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the four gospels. But you understand what I'm saying. When we use these general terms, which I'm not suggesting you stop, I'm just suggesting that we should be clear. I encourage you to, to, you know, when you use the generalized terms that you make sure you're, you're, you're speaking in such a way that people understand you're talking about the law as in the five books of Moses, not the law as in the commandments given starting in Exodus 20. That that distinction is important. You got to be very clear when you talk about the gospel. Well, which one? <laughs> It's going to cause some of you to lose your mind. There are multiple gospels. Um, very, And that, that's an objective statement. That's not my opinion. Like you, you go through the word of God, you go through the New Testament, and when it uses the word gospel, you need to get the context. Is it talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or is it talking about something else? Is the gospel of the kingdom is, is related to the physical earthly kingdom and its coming king? has nothing to do with you going with your soul being saved and your sins being forgiven and you going to heaven when you die. They're two completely distinctly different gospels. One exists for the purpose of saving souls, the other exists to give you information about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so so you have to be careful to define your terms and be clear, be specific. Now, so that we can rightly divide and we can and we can do our best to be doctrinally correct we're going to go back to genesis 15 uh the passage we're going to look at it has a relationship actually every passage we're about to look at has a relationship to john 117 all right so 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 we we started with john 117 i'm going to demonstrate to you as best i can the the relationship that each passage has with john 117 and then we, we're going to build upon that as we move to the, to the word of God and try to answer the question, why did God give the law? So Genesis 15 verses 1 through 7, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision saying, fear not Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is, is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold. To me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And and he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. All right, so so there's some realities here that we need to point out that will begin to that begin to make clear what we've been talking about. That they're, they're related to the idea of law and grace, and they pertain to, to John 117. So so first, the Lord brought Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. But when the Lord first spoke to Abram, he was a pagan and an unbeliever. What did he, what had he done to earn this relationship with God, this interaction with God? Nothing. So then it was all of grace. God chose Abram, a a pagan, and called him out. And Abram said, okay, I'll go. (laughs) That was it. God chose him. And so it, it was God's grace that, that, gave him this opportunity to have this covenantal relationship with God. Second, we have an old man who has no seed, and he's concerned about that. He has no children of his own, but the Lord informs him he would not only have a child of his own as his heir, but that his children would be as innumerable as the stars of the sky. But what had Abraham done to earn that, to deserve that? I mean, here he is having this conversation with God, and God God is... Telling him what he wants to do with him, and then he interrupts the Lord and says, "Yeah, but I need some, I need some children." <laughs> and the Lord says, "You'll have them. You'll have them in abundance." What ha- What did Abraham do to deserve that? How did he earn that? Why was that given to him so freely? It was God's grace. There's no other. There's no other explanation. There's no other possibility. Uh, it was God. It was just God being gracious to him. And uh, third, Abram was granted God's righteousness in exchange for his faith. So, so in other words, even in Abraham's day, it was by grace, through faith, that man received the righteousness of God. Does that sound familiar to you? Now, we just, you know, a few weeks ago, I uploaded a broadcast on Old Testament salvation. We'll this in depth. Uh, the idea is that that in the Old Testament God established uh, the means to escape condemnation, and it was by belief in what God said. And in exchange for your belief, God gave you His righteousness. Uh, now we want to see why this interaction between Abraham and God is so significant, especially with regards to John one seventeen. In order to make that connection, turn to Galatians three. And let's look at verses 16 through 19. Verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect, for if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So God made promises to Abraham and his seed Abraham had no idea the implication of the terminology that God was using with him. That seed, you know, w- would be the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be the uh, the eventual culmination of it all. This passage deliberately separates the promises God made to Abraham from the law. That's extremely important for for all of us. The Lord gave the law. 430 years after he made these promises to Abraham, and the Lord tells us distinctly in Galatians, the promises that I have made, whether it's to Abraham, whether it was to Noah, whether it's to Moses, whether it's to you and I, if God made promises to a certain group of people, those promises are not based on merit. Those promises are based on the word, God's character, God's word. God promised it will happen. Despite our, the, the way we live our lives, this same people, God, God gave this promise. All right. So he gave it to Abraham, it'd go to Abraham's seed. Well, along the way, they, they were not exactly the most righteous and holy people. You know, when God, so 430 years later, when God gives the law to Moses, Moses goes up on the mount for 40 days, comes down with the law, and the people are dancing naked around the golden calf. And it still, God still did not waver. His promise to Abraham still stands. His promises to you and I. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Okay, with that comes promises. And those promises belong to you despite your behavior, despite the way you live your life. Now, here's where where the trouble comes in. What people will say then is, well, if it doesn't matter how I live, then I can live any way I want. But as my pastor often teaches us, you do. You, you live exactly the way you want to live. Nobody makes you get up in the morning. Nobody makes you read your Bible. Do you read it? Nobody makes you pray. Do you pray? If you pray or you don't pray, that was what you chose to do. You live your life the way you want to live your life. Don't don't allow your flesh to suddenly take over and say, Oh, this gives me permission to be a devil. Because that's not the case. That's That's wrong. What this should do is give you the confidence to say, okay, God has promised me good. And so while I might make mistakes, as I, as I try my best to conform my life to Christ, I, I know for certain, God, God will help me fix it all in the end. If your mentality switches to, I can live any way I want, and God will still take me home, God will still keep his promises, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you mentally. There's something wrong with you emotionally. There's something wrong with you spiritually. You're broken. You're a sick and twisted individual. I mean, assuming you understand what Christ did for you, that should be a motivational factor to do right. Then understanding that the promises God made for you because you've trusted in Christ, made to you because you trusted in Christ, Belong to you despite your failure. If you you see that, if you view that as an opportunity to take advantage of God, you're sick. That should should overwhelm your your pride. That should overwhelm your sinful condition, your sinful mind, and and motivate you to want to do better and to want to be right. That's, That's what it's meant to do. So we're not concerned with you... I mean, if that's, if that's the thought that pops in your head, haha, I get to be a devil. You've got other problems that need to be worked out. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that this broadcast or any other is going to really help you. You need to go get right. You need to go fix this, this, this thought process you have developed. You need more time in God's word. And so the, these passages, they, they separate the promises from the law. And the Holy Spirit wants to make certain we know that keeping the law makes no difference when it comes to God's promises. In fact, Abraham had no law of Moses to keep. It didn't didn't exist to 430 years later. So when it did begin to exist 430 years later, after the promise was made to Abraham, God didn't waver for 430 years. Nothing caused God to, to reconsider. And then during the course of the law, which is Thousands of years two two, three, four thousand years, as bad as men were during that time period, God still didn't waver and since the law has passed off the scene and and Christ came and fulfilled the law, God's still not wavering, his promises will stand, so then the promises given to Abraham, God demonstrated both his grace. And the words given to Abraham were true. And both existed before the coming, before the law, before the law came into existence. Before the law even came on the sea, 430 years before the law was given. Now, but there, there are some interesting ideas that I want us to, we want to look at just a, just a little more deeply. First, Galatians clarifies and to thy seed, which is Christ. Galatians makes clear that the, the promises given to Abraham have larger prophetic implications, and while, Abraham, while Abraham's seed would be innumerable, there was a particular person God had in mind, and that person was coming, and he would come after the law, John one seventeen. Second, the promise made could not be disannulled by the law, so that that's that distinction. So then, so then keeping the law did not have any relationship to whether the promises would exist or not. The promises stand. Keeping the law has other consequences that you need to consider, but but they have no relationship to God keeping his word and what he told you. And so so the result of keeping the law was not reception of the promises. It was the possi you know the a possibility you know, could be given if certain criteria were met. So the Lord wants to clearly distinguish that his promises will happen despite man's conduct. Now, that is not to say man's conduct do not have other consequences. They do. But that's another topic. That's not what we're talking about here. And and you've got to be able to separate these things in your mind. Modern day Bible teaching is so shallow and so empty that what happens is people are not able to do to do multifaceted uh, uh, forms of analysis. They're, they're so single. They they, they they try to make they try to build doctrine and make decisions based on a single point of analysis, and that's a terrible mistake. You can't do that. It's not how things that's not how things work in the Bible, and that's not how things work in your life. You, you, you've you've got to you got to put out all the pieces and and see how they function, and then begin to 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 make. You know, to build your doctrine and to make things clear. Now, third, and this is where the ideas come together and make and make the passages like John 1:17 begin to make sense. The question is asked in Galatians 3: wherefore serveth the law? Now that's our that's our ultimate question that we want to. Ask. Why did God give the law? What's the purpose for the law? What's the reason for the law? Why did it come? Why is it here? And God God asked that question for you in his word. Isn't that amazing? Who would have thought that the answer to the question, why did God give the law, would actually be in the word of God? (laughs) So rather than making up some philosophical answer or going to a rabbi and seeing what he thinks, we just ask the word of God. Doesn't that seem like a good idea? Now, God gave the answer. It was added. The law served to regulate the life of the Jews in the land that God promised to Abraham. You could actually take it back a step further. It was given to them in the wilderness. So so it regulated their lives in the wilderness, but it was expanded and made made more clear when they came into the promised land. It was was there to regulate their lives. Uh, This law was added because of transgressions. But according to Galatians a time limit of sorts was placed on its existence. Galatians says that seed was Christ and the law was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. So the law would be in effect until the coming of Jesus Christ. And with Jesus Christ would come grace and truth. This means the law was given by Moses, right? But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There was a divisional change according to John 1.17. We have to put a we have to rightly divide here, but it had no bearing on the promises of God made before the law, during the law, or after the law, nor did it, nor does it mean that grace and truth did not exist prior to the coming of the law. They did but something special, something unique came with Jesus Christ and it marked the the end of the law is not not the right way to say it, but, but Christ came to fulfill that law. And we use the law in a particular way today, which we'll see later, but we don't live under the law. We're not in bondage to the law. We don't serve the law. The law serves us, wherefore serveth the law. The law exists to serve man. We'll talk about that again in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, so why did God give the law? Let's let's look at some answers. I'm going to give you five answers. Okay, that that I believe are are clear. I, I don't think they're debatable. I, I think that they are they are they can be seen as fundamental because they are abundantly obvious as you read the Word of God. If you disagree, uh, send me an email. We'll talk about it. Um, if you don't disagree, praise the Lord. <laughs> Uh, if you disagree, don't get mad at me and and break fellowship. <laughs> Just we can agree to disagree. As long, as long as you're as long as you believe salvation is by grace through faith and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, many other things we can debate on, we can talk about, but that doesn't mean we have to fight each other and, and destroy relationships over it. Some things are worth destroying relationships over, biblically speaking. But the majority of the ideas that Christians fight over and ruin ruin testimonies and relationships over are not those ideas. They're not the biblical ideas. So anyways, all right. So why did God give the law? Galatians 3 verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So the passage literally answers the question for us. At least in part. I mean there there are Again, there are multiple answers. There's a, I have found at least five that I think are credible and relevant. Um, maybe you can find more. I've read books that suggest more, but when you read some of the answers, they, it, it's it's more subjective than objective. So I left those out. I, I, I did not include those in in my understanding of why God gave the law. So the answer is clear and definitive. Wherefore serveth the law? Answer number one. God gave the law to the Jews in the wilderness and promised land to regulate transgressions until the Messiah came and fulfilled that law. The law is not given to the world as a means of earning justification from God by works. God imposes laws upon men to try and prevent their evil imaginations from from getting out of hand from from existing in abundance it's meant to tame you and give you a guideline to say god says don't lie i'm i'm going to do my best not to lie <clears throat> god says don't steal i'm going to do my best not to steal um god says don't commit adultery and fornication i'm going to do my best not to commit adultery and fornication it gives us a baseline to not plunge into the world of evil and and overindulgence and um uh, but 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 specifically, it was given to Israel for that purpose. The law belongs to Israel, but it exists for our learning and admonition. So we don't live under the law, but we can go back to the law and say, you know, <laughs> God hated when men lie. God hated when, when people dishonored their mother and father. So I'm not going to do those things. I, I want to try and please God. Uh, it was given... It was given so the Jews could live peacefully as God defines peace in the land he promised to Abraham. All right. So answer number one is it was given to regulate the lives of the Jews. It was given from Moses to the Jews. Mark chapter two, verses 23 through 28. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and wasn't hungry? He and they that were with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests, and gave also to them which were with him. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So answer number two. The answer number two was, was framed as a question back in Galatians 3. Wherefore serveth the law? All right, and the Lord, the Lord answers that here. The law was meant to serve man. The law was meant to be a servant, not a master. And the Lord says that the way the Lord illustrates it is the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. You know, that now that's that's a concept difficult to explain clearly. And so to to help illustrate that, what what I what I the idea I have in my head is God said that man needed help that was meat for him. So the Lord made a woman and gave the woman to the man. He did not give the man to the woman. Do you understand? So, so the man needed help, and that help needed to be meat for him. It needed to be proper. It needed, it needed to fulfill certain realities and duties, and, and it, needed, it needed to be of, of a certain quality that it was meat for the man. So he made the woman and gave the woman to the man. He did not give the man to the woman. That man was supposed to be in position of leadership. Now, this is not to say that God put women in bondage and and that that man was supposed to dominate the woman and lord over her and and, and all that garbage. That's that's not what we're saying here. And again, if that's what pops up into your head, you're more influenced by feminists of the world than you are by the word of God. And and it it bothers me that I have to make these, these little explanations because the world of Christianity is so influenced by the world. We're not influencing the world. The world is influencing most of us. And so when I say things like God gave the woman to the man, many of you cringe, (laughs) which is ridiculous and frustrating. But to illustrate our idea, this is an important distinction. Man is held responsible before God for his leadership in the home because God made the woman for the man. It's her job, it's her responsibility to, to subject herself to her husband, but it's his job to lead and to lead properly. And, and when both do that, the man gets the help that is needed for him. So the law was made and given to man to serve man, to be a help to man. And somehow men flip that and, and they become servants to the law. Well, the law is there to prove your condemnation. The law is there to give you that, that base guideline to say, God doesn't want me to be a liar. God doesn't want me to to be a fornicator, an adulterer. God doesn't want me to be a thief. So it gives us that base guideline, and we use that. It it, it becomes servant to us so that we can use it as a means of help to be pleasing to God. So answer number two, the law was meant to serve man. Romans 5 verses 19 through 21. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So answer number three, to identify. The offense. You can't assume you and I know right from wrong. We that 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 is not entirely true. And um it's something we need to be careful about. We want to set in place objective measures for these things, more importantly, from God's word. By objective, I don't mean you tested and found that one form of morality is potentially better than another. No, no, by objective, I mean. You can look to the word of God and say, this is why I don't lie. This is why I'm not a fornicator. This is why I'm faithful to my wife. This is why I don't dishonor my parents. All right? That, that's the objective measure that I'm talking about. And so, so we use that to identify the offense. Now, According to this passage, disobedience and sin was already in the world long before the law was given. But when the law came, it was clearly defined to be offensive behavior. Now, God could have dealt, he could have done things differently. He could have said, I don't know, man is so wicked. I think I'm going to flood the earth and destroy everybody. But instead, he said, what I'm going to do is send a law that will be so clear and will so demonstrate your offensive behavior, you you have no excuse. And so that's what the Lord did. In this, in this way, the law did its job of demonstrating man's guilt by clearly defining what God says is right and what God says is wrong. That, and we want that clear explanation. In Romans 3, the Bible says, the law is, is the knowledge of sin. So in other words, it, it would be very difficult for you to know exactly what sin is without that body of information that was sent to man to define it, The law. Romans 7 Paul said I had not known sin but by the law so that that's its purpose is to define in many ways what sin is now we don't look back to the law and say you're wearing mixed mixed fabric <laughs> all right so so you you again even within the law you've got to rightly divide the aspects of the law that carry over to the New Testament church now if you if you want to look back to the law and say God doesn't God didn't like his people wearing mixed fabric so I'm not going to do it praise the lord get you some single fabric clothing and and wear them to your heart's content but you can't teach that as though it's new testament doctrine that's like people saying you know they didn't eat pork in the old testament so I'm not eating pork well that's up to you but my wife and I we like bacon and and we don't have any new testament uh you know Admonition not to eat bacon. So if you don't want to eat bacon, that, that's up to you. You know, so you've got to rightly divide the law and, and, and its particulars that apply to the New Testament church as it pertains to defining what sin is and what sin is not. Uh, so but that's again another topic for another day. Galatians 3, verses 21 through 26. Is the law then against the promises of God? Now we just we when we were in Galatians previously, we talked about this. Uh, you know quite substantially. No, it's not. God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them which to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And there we go again. Each of these passages has had a subtle reference to John 117. And um, answer number four, It's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So then the law is not a means of justification. It brings you to the one who can justify you. When someone says, well, I I believe you got to keep the law to be saved. First of all, you don't know what you're saying. You you obviously don't have an understanding of what the law is. You can't even keep the law today. It's not even possible. Where are you going to go to give the sacrifices? Where are you going to go to have the feasts? You're going to go to the temple? You, you, You might have a slight problem there. There's a massive mosque where the temple was. So you're going to ask them if you can sacrifice animals to to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the mosque? (laughs) Uh, I would suggest that probably wouldn't be a good idea. That might end your life sooner than you thought. Um, Muslims are not particularly gracious, (laughs) especially in that part of the world. So the law is a schoolmaster. It brings you to Christ. It can't justify you, so it brings you to the one who can justify you. Um, It teaches us we fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we need a Savior. The first conclusion, all men are under sin and have no way of escape. That was clearly clearly stated in the passage. But God made a promise, just as he promised Abraham Abraham. All who put their faith in Christ would escape the condemnation that came from violating God's word. Now, before this faith in Christ came, everyone was condemned due to their transgression of the law. By the way, everyone is still condemned because of their transgression of the law. But you can escape that condemnation through Jesus Christ. I was condemned, John three eighteen. He that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So, so you escape that condemnation through Christ. The law in that, in that way is a schoolmaster used to prepare you spiritually, mentally, and emotionally for, the, for your need of Jesus Christ. And again, this reality, it points us right back to John 1.17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. A promise was in effect that would be fulfilled by the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and the Lord absolutely, absolutely fulfilled that promise. Praise God. Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10, this will give us our last answer. And, and it's just a great passage. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, can never, can never with those sacrifices they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshipers, once purged, should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible, it is not possible, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither has, has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God, he taketh away the first, that he should that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Answer number five. The law was a shadow. Of good things to come. Along the lines of its being a schoolmaster, it was a picture, it was a type, it was a shadow of the deliverance that would come through Jesus Christ, constantly pointing us to our need for a Savior. The the law and its sacrifices were insufficient to purge the sinner's conscience because it was incomplete, It, it cannot take away sin. In some ways, it was a temporary measure that maybe gave some temporary reprieve, but it was not, it can never take away sins. So in those sacrifices was an illustration that some better thing was coming. Now you have to understand, if you go back to our topic on Old Testament salvation, that doesn't mean someone went to the temple, sacrificed a lamb and said, oh, by the way, this is a picture of the coming of the lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. (laughs) That that didn't happen. But we look back now and we see that these were types and pictures and, and it's foreshadowing of the coming of the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's exactly what it is. They didn't know that, but we know that. And through the offering of Christ, your sins are taken away. You're sanctified forever. Now, if that sanctification is forever, when do we lose it? You don't it's forever. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Now, the law the law is a multifaceted tool used by God for many reasons, as we've seen. Number one, it was used to regulate Israel in the promised land. Number two, it was used to serve man. Number three, it was used to identify offense. Number four, it was used to bring us to Christ. Number five, it, it, it was used as a shadow of what was to come. Now, ironically, it was never used for justification, (laughs) but an overwhelming number of cults and denominations teach that salvation comes by keeping the law. The law was used by God in many ways. It was never used, never used for justification. In fact, it was used to illustrate, to demonstrate, to define your condemnation. It was so used to put you in a box you can't get out of until you cry out for mercy. And that mercy can only come through Jesus Christ. Now, for you and I, we examine the precepts of the law, and we use it to help us identify where and how we have transgressed God's word. And then having seen that, we understand our guilt. We are then condemned. And it puts us in a a position where we understand we have a desperate need for a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior. The work of the law is to help bring sinful men to the conclusion, I need Jesus Christ. That's its purpose. He kept the law. He fulfilled the law. And then he died for our sins, just as the law and the prophets said he would do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I encourage you to escape the condemnation that comes under the law. That's its purpose. That's what it's there for. If, if you if you feel condemned, if you are condemned, that means the law is doing its job. It's doing very well. But you need a solution. You need an answer. That answer is found in Jesus Christ. And I hope you know him. I hope you've trusted him. I hope he is your means of, of justification because he's the only way. Muhammad can't help you. The Pope can't help you. Buddha can't help you. These are all dead men. You can't go to dead men to receive life. You've got to come to the one who defeated death and hell and rose from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for listening and God bless. (laughs)